I'll admit it was a little convenient that I had uh, water as my example this morning. <laughs> kind of nice to have a, a drink sometimes. <clears throat> so I'm, I will admit, the passage that we're looking at this morning is one that's uh, a little bit exciting and a little bit scary all at the same time. Um, it is a challenging passage. Um, it's one of what's called the imprecatory psalms. And imprecatory is a big fancy word that basically means I'm crying out for justice. Um, but there are parts of this psalm that are a little bit disturbing even. Um, a little bit challenging, a little bit hard to handle, maybe even hard to stomach. I think that's okay. Because as we understand what's going on, we're going to understand more about who God is, more about what he expects from us, more of what our response should be to him. Um, but as we've been going through this series through the book of Psalms, I've entitled the entire series, What is Worship? And this week I actually got a phone call because someone read through this and they were, they were pre-studying. They were trying to figure out, okay, how is this worship? Like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Something seems off. And really, I would tend to agree. Um, Psalm 137 is a tough one. All of the imprecatory psalms are a little bit challenging. But they're part of Scripture, which means we need to study them. We need to understand them. We need to dig into them and identify what's going on with this. And how is it? that it can be part of worship, part of recognizing who God is, that we come across a verse that says, how blessed is the one who repays what you've done, how blessed is the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against a rock. Ouch. That seems very, very harsh. What is going on there? What, what is happening with all of this? This is the kind of the last of the individual psalms that we're going to be studying in our series of what is worship. Next week, I'm going to try and wrap everything together and, and identify and, and give us a definition and kind of, okay, what is the overarching principle of psalms? What are we supposed to do with it? But as I was going through, I realized, you know, I, I cannot ignore the imprecatory psalms. Even though they're challenging, even though they're difficult, even though they present some things that may be hard for us to stomach or to handle, I can't skip over these because these are part of Scripture. So I think the first question is, what is an imprecatory psalm? What is that, the definition of that? Well, they're defined as a prayer to God that someone be judged and justly punished. And, and that's a, a big Definition, there's a lot in there. So I want to break it down just a little bit. I think I've got a slide for that one, Elsha. A prayer to God. That's the first thing. That's the, the key. Is these imprecatory psalms, they're not crying out to somebody else. They're not crying out to a, a world power or a government or anything like that. They're, they are prayers to God. But prayers specifically that someone be judged and justly punished. And I think that that's an important aspect as we go through this, that, that they are crying out for justice. They're not crying out for something beyond what is just and what is reasonable. And so with that in mind, I've got a couple of examples of this idea, these imprecations that come throughout Scripture. In Judges chapter 5, verse 31, it says, Let all your enemies perish, O Lord. That's a cry for justice. That's crying out to God that something happened. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. That seems a little harsh. That, that everybody be wiped out? Well, in Jeremiah 11, verse 20, it says, But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings of the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. This, this person in Jeremiah, wants to see vengeance poured out by God. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we have Acts 23, verse 3. Paul is speaking, and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
That seems kind of, kind of hard, kind of harsh. Or if you were to, to do your own study through the New Testament, you would find a phrase, let them be accursed. It comes up several times, over and over and over again. And that's the same idea. That's that idea of, God, I want you to judge them and to punish them accordingly. Let them be accursed. You know, there's a, an issue that floats around, the problem of evil. But some people try and say, well, because evil exists, therefore God can't exist. And so we don't want to deal with it. There's another issue or another problem that comes up. When people are looking through the Old Testament, all that they see is this, this mean, angry God who does all of this mean, harsh, angry things. But, but we, want to, we want to talk about the New Testament God, the New Testament Jesus, who's, who's love and who's happy and who's, you know, all of this stuff is, is wonderful, rainbows and unicorns and all that type of a thing. And yet, we know, as we've studied through Scripture, it's the same God through all of it. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in fact, if you, if you think that the New Testament God is just nice and loving and kind and never does anything hard or harsh, you skipped the entire Wednesday night series where we looked at Revelation and the judgments that are coming, that God has promised he will judge. And so what are we to do with these things? How are we to handle these portions of Scripture that honestly are difficult and challenging, that seem so mean and so harsh and so hard? Well, let me ask you a question. I, I don't want an answer to this, but what is the worst thing that has ever happened to you? To you personally? Everybody has a different story. Everybody has a different background. And I don't, I don't want you to um, have to necessarily share what those worst things are. But I'm not talking about you know, a bad day where somebody cuts you off in the parking lot or that you, you got in a wreck. Or so, I mean, those things happen. They're not fun. They're not pleasant. I'm talking like major bad things that have happened. For many of us, we live in a, in a very sheltered, pleasant, comfortable life. And we've not had those major, major difficult bad things. Some of us have. And I'm aware of, of that. I got thinking about the idea of the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, which is an organization that tracks some of the persecution that happens to Christians around the world just for the fact that they claim to be followers of Christ. They're thrown in jail. They have all of their goods taken away from them. They have terrible, terrible, heartrending experiences. Or maybe you think of just a, a few decades ago in the 30s and 40s where millions of people were rounded up and thrown in prison camps just because they were Jews. There are all kinds of examples of, of terrible, evil, vile things happening. Human trafficking, murder, slavery, atrocities of all kinds. Do you ever wish that people would just get their comeuppance, the, the just desserts? One of the examples that popped in my head as I was thinking and studying, you ever watch a movie and you know who the bad guy is? And you're watching and you're just waiting for that moment where the good guy punches him in the face. Do you ever, do you ever cheer? Maybe not outwardly, but you ever think to yourself, yeah, it's about time. Do you do I give him one more? Yeah. Now, do you ever find yourself thinking, ooh, I shouldn't have that attitude. I mean, that, that's mean of me. I, I shouldn't want that. You know, because obviously uh, in the New Testament we find that we are supposed to turn the other cheek, right? We're supposed to, to forgive. We're supposed to give, forgive 70 times 7. You guys remember all of those passages, right? Which totals out of 490 times. So does that mean that we, we forgive 490 times and then the 491st time, then we get to punch him in the face? No, thank you for shaking your head. No, that's, that's not what that means. And we're not, we're not going to study that particular passage, but you're familiar with this idea that we are supposed to forgive, that we are supposed to be loving, that we are supposed to turn the other cheek. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we deal with this idea of wanting what is just and wanting what is right? Because obviously the bad guy needs to have their comeuppance. And yet, being who we're supposed to be, and doing what we're supposed to be. I, I mentioned the fact that sometimes people think that there's a mean God in the Old Testament. 
and a nice, kind, loving God in the New Testament. And yet, we know that it's the same God throughout all of it. So, as we dig into Psalm 137, these are some of the questions that come to our minds as we deal with passages like this. And as we look around at, at the world around us and we recognize that there's evil and there's bad things and that there are people who deserve their comeuppance. But what should our attitude be? What should our response be? How do we deal with these things? Prior to deciding to preach Psalm 137, I'd only ever heard it taught one time. I, I don't know if people just avoid it or didn't know what to do with it or what, but I've only heard it taught once, and that one time they didn't deal with the last three verses, which kind of left me um, shaking my head and unsatisfied because that's part of Scripture. And if it's in there, we need to deal with it. All Scripture is given by God, is inspired by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. So if it's in there, we need to deal with it. We need to understand it. And yet it's a difficult, challenging thing. So we're going to dig into Psalm 137. And we're going to try and figure out, okay, what is it that God expects of us? How do we deal with these kinds of, of issues? Is God a mean God? Are we unrighteous because we want justice? Because we want that bad guy to get what he deserves? What are we supposed to do with all of these things? I think we're going to find some of the answers to that in Psalm 137. So I'm going to read it, and then we will dig into it and figure out what's going on. Psalm 137, starting off in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to the very foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's a little sobering, isn't it? It's a little bit difficult. I mean, that seems harsh and mean. To desire that, that they would have the recompense, specifically that someone would take their babies. That, that's what this is saying. To take the babies and smash them against rocks. That seems really, really harsh. Dark. For sure, it is. So what's going on? Why is this part of Scripture? And, and you know, like I said, I've only heard this preached through once and not in its entirety because that is tough. That is hard to deal with. Now, I think that because it is part of Scripture that we can find out. We can understand it. And we can realize that it actually lines up with everything else that we know about who God is and what's going on. But it also lines up with what we understand of humanity, of, of the issues that we face, of the challenges that we deal with. Now, this is very, very sobering, like I said. But one of the reasons that I enjoy the Psalms is it presents the entire gamut of the human experience. The joys and the sorrows, the, the excitement and the good things, as well as the challenges and the difficulties, all of it is presented in here. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, it covers all of it. Last week, we looked at the idea that Christ, the Messiah, was coming as the ruler. And, and I mentioned that as a victorious warrior, that would be part of what they were looking for in the Messiah, in the promised one, what the Jews were excited for and, and desiring. And so with that context, with that understanding of, of this priest who is going to be a king, who is also the victorious warrior, that he would come and judge and conquer and rule righteously. With that idea in mind, 
we understand a little bit of what's going on with this. But have you ever felt the kind of expressions that they're dealing with through this? That, that anger, that desire for vengeance, that desire for justice? Or maybe you felt what was expressed a little bit before, how can I sing the Lord's song? Have you ever had a time in your life where you thought to yourself, I can't pray. I can't talk to God. I can't go to church because of these things. I, I just, I, I can't do it. I'm not up to it. Those emotions are, are all part of what we deal with in life. And so how are we supposed to handle those? How are we supposed to deal with those? Well, like I said, let's dig through Psalm 137, see if we can understand any of those things. Starting off at the beginning of the verse, or of the, of the passage, he says, by the rivers of Babylon. Now, it tells us from the get-go the context and what's going on. He says, there we sat down. So it's a corporate thing. There's a group that's going on. But later we're going to find out that it's, he speaks as an individual, I. And so there's this combination of we, the group, the, the ones of Israel who'd been in exile, who were living in Babylon, who'd been captive. But then it specifies to that individual, I. Now, in order to understand these things, I think that it is important for us to get a little bit of context. So let's go to 2 Kings, verse 25. We know the story of the fact that they are captive in Babylon, but I think 2 Kings chapter 25 gives us a little bit more understanding on what's going on there, of how this came about. One thing that I, I wanted to point out, by those uses of we and I, he's expressing that this isn't just an academic exercise. This isn't just in theory, this is what goes on. He's saying, this is what I experienced. This is what we are dealing with right now. How do we understand these things? It's going to become very, very personal in the later parts of the verses. But, like I said, we need to take a look at 2 Kings chapter 25 to understand what's going on. Starting off at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1 it says, Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his armies against Jerusalem, and camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. It's a two-year siege. Right? From the ninth year to the eleventh year, they've been under siege. Now, if you remember history at all, you remember how sieges work. They weren't a nice, pleasant uh, affair where things went well. What they would do is set up around the city and starve the people out. They would try and cut off the water supply so that they couldn't you know, take care of themselves. They would cut off any kind of trade so there was no food and to the point that they would just surrender Right? That's, that's what's going on in a siege here. Now, on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. They're starving. Not pleasant. The city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden through the, Ch through the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon and Robah, and he passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. Slaughtered isn't just, well, they, they you know, executed them nicely. No, they, they slaughtered them. All of his sons before his eyes, and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and brought him with bronze feathers, and brought him to Babylon. So they, they pursued the army as it fled. They captured the king. They executed all of his sons right in front of his eyes. And the Babylonians, they didn't do that in a nice, simple way. I mean, they, they slaughtered him. And then they poked out his eyes. The last thing that the king got to see was the death of his children. Now, 
on the seventh day of the fiftieth of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the armies of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So what's going on here? What, what has happened? Pretty much wiped everything out. Right? Destroyed the city. Burned it to the ground. This is their capital city. This is, this is the center of their, their worship. This is the center of their life. And it's been destroyed. And the people have been massacred. Starvation has happened because of all of this. This is not a pleasant situation. And we get to Psalm 137. We'll turn back there. We get to Psalm 137, and this is what those people are remembering. They've been through a terrible, horrible thing. They have seen what war is like. And, and remember, there was no Geneva Convention in that day. War was brutal and terrible and horrible. We know a little bit. If you've, if you've talked to veterans, if you've experienced anything of that nature, you know that war is a horrible, terrible thing. And yet what they had experienced was far worse. These were innocent civilians that had been massacred. And, and all of the terrible things that, that can and do happen during war had been done to them. It's horrid. And so we get to verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. If you went through that kind of an experience, what would your reaction be? On, honest question, what would your reaction be? Would you sit down and weep? <laughs> I'd be pretty sad. I'd be devastated. All, my homeland is gone. I've been carried off into captivity. I have nothing. Many of them probably didn't even know where their family members were, if they were even alive. So it's a terrible, horrible thing. We sat down and wept. These people have been carried away into captivity, ripped from their homes. They've watched their friends and their families be destroyed. They've seen the atrocities of war. Now, the verse sets up a comparison that I think is kind of interesting. By the rivers of Babylon, we remembered Zion. Now, obviously, the question comes up, what is Zion? Does anybody know what Zion is or represents? Okay, Jerusalem, it's a mountain, it's the city of David. Uh, it actually comes up a lot in Scripture. We're going we're gonna to sidetrack just for a moment. I don't want to go too far on this. But Zion comes up quite a bit. Originally, it was a designation of the stronghold city of the Jebusites. It comes up in 2 Samuel 5, verse 7, and David captures that city. And that, that town is originally referred to as Zion. It is then transferred to be the city of David. And that name comes up several times as you go through as well. Uh, Mount Zion today is located on a narrow ridge between the Valley of Kidron and another valley. And it's about a half mile south of Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. Um, but later in Scripture, we find that it indicates the dwelling place of God. And I've got a, a list of various verses for you here that, that show these various uses of the term Zion. So it starts off as a city, but then it becomes the dwelling place of God. Uh, Jerusalem is listed as the dwelling place of God, so the two are linked together. Isaiah 52 verse 1 um, puts Zion and Jerusalem as kind of one in the same place. And yet Micah chapter 3 kind of separates them back out. So it's, it's this term that's used... But what I want you to recognize, it's not a technical term. It's kind of like the, the idea of a capital that we would use today. If I referred to the capital, what am I talking about? Well, there's the capital building, there's the capital city, and then there's the capital being representative of the government 
of what's going on. Well, Zion is that same kind of an idea. It, it specifically started off as the city of David, but became kind of the mountain and, and represents all of Jerusalem. And it's even uh, used in Psalm 69 to refer to basically all of Israel. It becomes a non-technical term generalized to the location of God and his people. It's a, it's a special place. It's what they remember as being representative of their homeland, their background. It's, it's where God is. And so that's what they're thinking of. That's what they're looking at with this idea of Zion. I, I gave you the example of uh, if we were to use capital, um, I, could, I could refer to the capital being Washington, D.C. as the entire city, or just go to the capital being the representation of government in general. And so Zion is some, kind of that same idea. Now, back in, in Psalm 137, these Israelites now are not in a terrible, horrible place. We just described this horrible event that they had gone through. But notice where they're at and what's going on. It says, by the rivers of Babylon. That, that should really stand out to us as they're not in a horrible place. They, they've got water flowing. It says that they were able to sit down, which means they have a little bit of leisure time. Um, they had their harps. It says we hung our harps, so they had some of their possessions. This, this isn't a terrible, horrible place that they are in now. In fact, it says um, we hung our harps on the willows in the midst of it. Now, that word willows is sometimes translated as poplars as well, but it's a shade tree. That's, that's the idea. So here these individuals are. Yes, they've experienced this terrible, horrible war, and yet now they have a little bit of leisure. They have their own possessions. They're able to sit down next to the rivers. I mean, what is a better, more beautiful place than to sit next to flowing rivers in the shade, make some music, enjoy? That, that sounds pretty nice, actually. That's a pretty decent thing. And yet, what they say is that when we remember Zion, when we think back to the place of God, to God's dwelling, to where we used to be, we're in sorrow. We're saddened because, because they aren't experiencing what they, what they want, what they wish for. They remembered where they had been. Even though this isn't a terrible, horrible place, they remembered what had been. And in comparison to their home and the freedom that they had, they remembered Zion, and they were left in tears. Now, verse 3 and 4, it says, For there are captors demanded of us songs. The captors are the ones who carried them away. It says there are tormentors uh, demanded of us mirth. The idea is the ones who plundered their homes. These are the individuals that brought them there, and they're saying, hey, sing, sing your songs, sing, in essence, sing the Psalms. Now, there are a couple of different ways that you could take this demand, because that word isn't just uh, a straight-out order. It's not like they ordered us to start singing because we were slaves, they're making us sing. The idea here is that they asked of us to sing our songs. Now, like I said, this could be taken two ways. One, the more positive, is maybe they had the freedom to worship the way that they wanted to. They had the opportunity to worship. And that, that is a possibility. But also, that even in captivity, they were asked to be some entertainment, to share the songs from their homeland. And in either way, they were asked to sing their songs. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to sing and in verse 4, they ask the question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? See, these songs that they were being asked to, to sing were praises and worship to God. And yet, with everything that they dealt with, how could they bring themselves to worship God? I, I asked a little bit ago, if you've ever been in a place where you couldn't even bring yourself to pray, when fear or guilt or sorrow or pain or sadness of some kind prevented you even from talking to God. That's really the point that these folks are expressing. That they've got to that point where they can't worship anymore. So what do they do? Well, verses 5 and 6 kind of shift the focus. 
He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. He kind of sets out with this idea or this concept that, you know, I cannot sing the songs. I cannot sing praises to God. And he shifts from a corporate idea of we to an individual dedication. He says, I am going to remember Jerusalem. A a thought popped to my head or an idea of this type of an expression. Have you ever seen astronauts when they get back to the ground and they they just hug the ground and they want to kiss the earth? Or maybe a a pilot after a a harrowing, terrible experience, they, they just kiss the dirt because they're so happy to be back on earth, on the ground. That's kind of the expression or the idea that's going on here is I want to remember Jerusalem. I want to remember Zion. I want to remember the place that I was. That's what they long for. That's what they, they're wishing to get back to. And he even goes to the point to say, you know what, if, if, I, don't, if I forget that, if I get so wrapped up in Babylon in this, this you know, it's a nice place, it's lush, it has the, the shade, the trees, all of that good stuff. If I forget where I'm from and where I wish I was, I don't want, even want to be able to play the music. I don't even want to be able to sing. May my voice just not work at all if I don't remember Jerusalem, if I don't remember where I came from. So what does Jerusalem represent? Well, it's, it's home, it's freedom, it's God's temple, it's all of the things that are laid behind. Now, all of that kind of sets up for the last three verses, which is what I mentioned when I've heard this taught, it, I, they didn't really deal with those last three verses. And yes, we can understand what we've looked at so far. If, if I forget where God brought me from or what's going on, even in spite of all the terrible things, then that's a problem. But then we get to verses 7, 8, and 9. And it's not that he shifts focus because he's continuing this same idea, but it, it turns a little bit dark and a little bit difficult. But what does he say? Verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to the very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who dashes, who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So what does the psalmist ask for? And this really brings us to the point, to the focus of the entire psalm. What is it that they desire? What, if, if you've been through all of this, I, I heard revenge and I saw vengeance. If, if you'd been through all of what they dealt with, what would you ask for? What would you want? Now, you don't have to give me the Sunday school answer that I just want Jesus, I just want God. What would you actually desire in your heart? What do you expect? I've heard, heard a couple. Revenge. Vengeance. Do what? Get them. Get them. Right? That's, that's what you would want. That's what I would want. And, and honestly, that would be kind of reasonable. But what does it say? What does he ask for? Verse 7, the first word, remember. See, that, that's, what, that, that's the only thing in this that, that is actually a request. Remember. That's it. He doesn't actually come out and say, God, go get them and destroy them and wipe them out. He says, remember, O Lord. Don't forget. Don't forget these things. He never comes out and, he's, and, and says, God, I want you to go in and wipe these people out. And he definitely doesn't say, oh, I wish I were the one that got to swing the sword and take out these, these evil, bad people. That's, that's not what it says. And, and that's, when I, when I understood that about this passage, it opened up so much of my understanding of, of what's going on and what kind of response is expected. Because our natural response would be, I want vengeance. 
I want to be that guy, the good guy, who goes in and punches the lights out of the bad guy in the movie or whatever the case might be. And yet that's not what he asks for. He says, remember. Remember what Edom did? Now, now, if you don't remember your, your Old Testament history, Edom was a, uh, one of the sons of Esau. It was a connected family. They were, they were close. They were their neighbors. Um, and they'd had some issues with that tribe. They'd never really had all-out war where they were trying to destroy each other, but they definitely weren't on friendly terms. And what we see in verse 7 is that Edom said... They, they were basically sitting on the sidelines cheering on the Babylonians, saying, raise it, raise it, destroy Jerusalem, wipe them out. The book of Obadiah really deals with um, Edom and what's going on, and, and that they sat to the sidelines. They didn't participate in the destruction of Jerusalem, but they were definitely there wanting God to, to wipe them out. The psalmist also says, remember what Babylon did. Remember all of these things. And, and yes, there was destruction. Yes, there was terrible things. But you'll notice in verse 8, he says, How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. They aren't asking for over an abundance of destruction on them. They're saying we want justice. We want the recompense. We want the equal treatment. We want the just desserts. We, we look forward to that. We even desire that. And, and so he's not saying that that's not okay. Don't, please don't misunderstand me when I'm, saying, when I'm talking about this. I'm not saying that those desires are wrong or, or unrighteous or anything like that. But what, what he's saying, all that he's asking God is remember. Remember what they did. We look forward to the time when just desserts are served out, when punishment is given, when the right thing occurs. But he's not even asking God to do that right now. All that he's asking God is to remember. And so I started digging into that one. And I, I, I asked my question, myself the question, what, what is it about remembrance that does something different than vengeance, than justice, than asking for revenge? Or, the thought even occurred to me, why aren't they asking to get out of this situation? Why aren't they asking for escape? Why aren't they asking, hey, why can't we just go back to Jerusalem where we, where we were? They, they don't ask for any of that. You, you've got... I think probably because they know they need You're jumping ahead of me, but that's okay. <laughs> because they know God promised them judgment. They, they, the Israelites were receiving justice from God. And so they knew that. They, they deserved this. This was right. This was what was supposed to happen because they had turned away from God. They weren't following him. And so, yeah, they were where they were because of themselves. And they're saying, you know, we look forward to this. But they're asking. They were warned many, many times, yes. But they're asking for God to remember. Now, what is it that's unique or different about remembrance as compared to revenge or vengeance or even getting out of the situation? Well, I started doing a little bit of a, a study through this idea of remember, particularly focused on God remember. And I came up with several passages in which it says something to the effect of God will remember or did remember his covenant. And I don't have all of those listed out here because I want to encourage you to take a little bit of time and go through and study out that phrase, remember and covenant. And that's, that's going to get you a lot of examples but time and time and time again, it says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. So a good example is in Exodus chapters 2 and 6, where the people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt, right? They've been there for 400 years. And then it says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And the entire story of Exodus starts based on that. The fact that God remembered what he had promised and what he was going to do, that he was going to bring them out. Several times in the Psalms that comes up, um, in Genesis chapter 9, it's, it comes up again that God remembered his covenant. In Leviticus, even in Ezekiel, there are examples of times in which God either did or will remember his covenant. 
And so, if the psalmist knew his Old Testament, which generally speaking the psalmists did, and was aware of this idea that God fulfills his promises, that God does what he says he's going to do, rather than asking for deliverance or escape or vengeance or revenge, what they do is simply say, you know what, God, you have it under control. Remember your covenant. Remember what you've said you're going to do. Remember who you are. Remember who these things are. And we will just trust you. I think the answer really comes from what we were studying last week. And I, I alluded to this already. I mentioned it. But if they, remember, if they know the Messiah, the promises that God had given, the deliverance that he had promised, all of that stuff that was going to happen, if they remembered the king, the priest, and the uh, conquering victorious warrior from the psalm that we looked at last week, then what they are doing is simply saying, we trust you, God. We trust you to handle this. Remember your promises. Remember your covenant. Remember what they did to us. Remember also that you promised you'd punish us because we deserved it, like you mentioned. But remember that you also said you're going to bring us back. Remember that when we turn to you, you're going to draw us out of this slavery, out of these problems. Remember who you are. I think it's significant that they didn't ask to be the ones to do the recompense. They want justice. That's clear. That's their desire. But they're not asking to be the ones who do that. They simply trust God to handle it in the right way. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that really difficult. I want justice, and I want it now. If you've ever been in an experience, even the barest shadow of something like that, My guess is that, like me, your response was, God, get me out of this. God, fix this. God, deal with them. And yet, their response is to simply trust God that he will handle it. Why? Why do they do that? How do they do that? I think it really comes from an understanding of who God is. Is God good? Is God just? Is God loving? Is God holy? Is God powerful? Is he capable of dealing with these things? Yes, most definitely. Then shouldn't I, is he unchanging? Will he fulfill his promises? Will he do these things? If that's the case, then shouldn't I trust his handling of the issue, no matter what it is? The Israelites did express how they were wronged by both Edom and Babylon. One cheered from the sidelines and the other directly attacked them. They wanted the same done, but they didn't seek to be the ones that did it. They recognized how happy the ones that did bring that recompense would be, but they didn't even ask permission to be the ones who did it. And in going through that, I think they possibly remembered a couple of other passages In Ezekiel chapter 33, we're going to turn there real quick. In Ezekiel 33, I think they might have remembered, and and I'm just guessing as to what they actually knew and thought of as going through this. But in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, we have a, a principle of who God is. Ezekiel 33:11 Say to them as I live declares the Lord God I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways why then will you die o house of Israel What does God desire what does he want He wants wicked people to turn to him If you've been wronged I know it's really easy to want justice, to want revenge, to want to be that person. But if we remember who God is, if we remember his attributes, if we remember that he is loving and just and holy, but that he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, he desires that they come to him. That's going to change the way that we respond, change the way that we act when bad things do occur to us. 
The other one that I wanted to point to is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36 is another example of understanding about God, about his attributes, about who he is, and the way that God the way that God acts. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, it says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will, will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is nothing remaining, bond or free. We, we may be more familiar with the New Testament quotation of this, in which, which says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If we keep that idea in mind, how should that affect our response? Now, one more thing that I want to point out about Psalm 137 and our understanding of it. That's, that's what's going on specifically in this psalm. I think that the psalmist is recognizing and remembering who God is, what he's done, the promises that he's made. And rather than saying, hey, I want to be the guy that goes out and executes vengeance, he says, God, you got this. Remember who you are, remember your covenants, remember your promises, and you do what you're going to do. Because you're going to do it way better than I would. But I think that there's something else that we modern readers of the Psalms need to recognize and notice. Now, I haven't brought this up a whole lot because it's really easy to overemphasize, and I don't want to do that. But the Psalms were very carefully arranged. The, the individuals who gathered the Psalms put them together in an order for a reason and to, to help us learn and understand and worship God better. I want you to look at the psalm that comes right before 137. Just, just real quickly, take a look at it, and I think that you'll notice something. Now, you're probably aware that when Scripture repeats itself, it's to add an emphasis and to make a point. Well, you look at Psalm 136, and there's something that's repeated 25 times, more than 25 times. What is it? Hmm? His... His loving kindness is everlasting. So, as modern readers, when we come to a psalm like this, I think that we also need to be reminded of this principle in Psalm 136, over and over and over again, the loving kindness, which I've, I've mentioned that that's the word hesed, and it's this, this really cool, awesome principle of, of a ruler who has authority and ability over someone else being nice to them when he doesn't have to. And God is loving kindness. It is everlasting. There is no end to it. It's continuous and keeps going. In Psalm 138, the one that follows where we're at, what is the response that comes up then? I will give thee thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to thee before the gods. I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. When we deal with these kinds of things, let's, let's go to the so what. what. What difference does Psalm 137 make for us? When we deal with these kinds of things, I think that it's important to remember the loving kindness of God the attributes of God, who he is, why he does what he does, how he functions. And it's going to drastically, dramatically change our response to when bad things happen. They do happen. They're going to happen. We live in a, an uncertain world. And yes, we so far have lived in a fairly sheltered, protected, free society. But if something were to happen, what would our response be? Obviously, I don't want it to. I pray that God protects our nation, protects our country, protects this area, and that we never have to deal with that kind of thing. But what if? What would your response be? How would you deal with that? It's my hope, 
it's my desire that all of us would remember Psalm 137 and the fact that they don't call for vengeance. Yes, they desire it, and that's reasonable because one of the attributes of God is justice. But more than that, what they cry out for, what they ask for, what they desire above all else is that God would remember. That he remember his covenant, his promises, his principles. So what do we do with psalms like this? With passages like this that are very difficult, that, that bring up some dark things, that, that address issues that are so hard to deal with. What do we do? Do we just look over them, skip them, ignore them? Or do we dig in and figure out exactly what it's saying and realize that, oh, it's not as crazy, bitter, difficult, hard as it first looked. It's actually an amazing reminder of who God is, that he is consistent to himself, and that he desires us to worship him because of who he is, not because of what we may think or may want, but that we would simply call out to him, call out to him to fulfill what he's already said he's going to do. So I would challenge you when those difficult things, when those hard things happen, have that kind of a response and an attitude. Not to be the guy that gets to punch him out and finish him off, but to be the one who simply turns back to God and says, God, this is yours. You know how to handle this. Remember who you are and do what you do. That's how we can take some of those difficult passages and use them to worship God because we recognize who God is. He's an awesome, amazing, powerful, loving, good, just, holy God that will deal with these things in the right way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes your word is hard. It is difficult. It has sections and issues that are either hard to understand or maybe we read them and we know exactly what it says and don't like it. Whatever the case is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn to you, to trust you, to rely on you, to worship you for who you are, not who we want you to be. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.